Well, since tonight there is no Super Bowl football game coming on, we can just spend as much time as we want in God's Word. And so, if you have your Bible, let's go to Genesis chapter 45. We'll pick up where we left off last week, where Joseph has revealed himself to his brothers. They are in shock to discover that the brother they sold into slavery some 20 years before uh, is now the prime minister of Egypt and uh, they're worried that he's going to be upset and retaliate and yet the exact opposite he forgives them and he reconciles with them and so let's pick up Genesis chapter 45 verse 9 and read through the end of this narrative haste ye and go up to my father and say unto him thus saith thy son Joseph God hath made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down unto me, tarry not, and thou shalt dwell in the land of Goshen, and thou shalt be near unto me, thou and thy children and thy children's children and thy flocks and thy herds and all that thou hast. And there will I nourish thee, for yet there are five years of famine, lest thou and thy household and all that thou hast come to poverty. And behold, your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin, that it is my mouth that speaketh unto you. And you shall tell my father of all my glory in Egypt, and of all that ye have seen, and ye shall haste and bring down my father hither. And he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck. Moreover, he kissed all his brethren and wept upon them, and after that his brethren talked with him. And the fame thereof was heard in Pharaoh's house, saying, Joseph's brethren are come. And it pleased Pharaoh well and his servants. And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, Say unto thy brethren, This do ye, laid your beasts, and go and get you unto the land of Canaan, and take your father and your households, and come unto me, and I will give you the good of the land of Egypt, and ye shall eat the fat of the land. Now thou art commanded, This do ye, Take you wagons out of the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Also, regard not your stuff, for the good of all the land of Egypt is yours. And the children of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the commandment of Pharaoh and gave them provision for the way. To all of them he gave each man changes of raiment, but to Benjamin he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of raiment. And to his father he sent after this manner ten asses laden with the good things of Egypt and ten she-asses laden with corn and bread and meat for his father by the way. So he sent his brethren away and they departed and he said unto them, See that you fall not out by the way. And they went up out of Egypt and came into the land of Canaan unto Jacob their father and told him saying, Joseph is yet alive and he is governor over all the land of Egypt. And Jacob's heart fainted, for he believed them not. And they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said unto them. And when he saw the wagons which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob their father revived. And Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is yet alive. I will go and see him before I die. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again, we count a privilege to study your word this evening. I pray and ask that you would help us to see it through the proper lens and that we might realize that there is a pattern being laid for us and for those who came before us 
uh, to prepare them for the Messiah that was to arrive. Lord, help us to see this beautiful pattern in Scripture tonight, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, sometimes as we're going through this study, we are focusing in on the details like we did last week on those events, how that we saw, how that Joseph's brothers sold him out, but then God is the one who superintended and sent him. Tonight, I would just like for us to kind of take a step back, and instead of being right into the details of those verses as they're rather plain to read, and to see the big picture of a pattern that is going on here. You and I have the benefit of living after the Bible was completed. And so the revelation of God was completed in the first century at the book of Revelation. And so when you and I read the scripture, we're not reading it like Isaiah did or even like Peter did without the completed revelation of God. You and I have the benefit of understanding that what God was doing was unfolding this narrative of redemption that came in culmination with the coming of Christ and when we go back and read the Old Testament, we get to see Jesus prefigured and patterned in Scripture. This is called biblical theology. It is the framework for understanding the Bible. It's an approach in reading and interpreting the whole story of the Bible while keeping your focus on the main point of Scripture, which is Jesus Christ. And so let me just take you to a couple of verses in the New Testament to lay this foundation, and then we'll come back and take a look at this. And so if you would, go with me to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, John chapter 5 are the two texts that I want to look at to lay the foundation for this to make sure that we are interpreting the Bible correctly and that we're not superimposing our own thoughts or ideas on it. In Luke 24, if you remember, it is the day that Jesus rose again from the dead. There are two disciples who are traveling to Emmaus, a, a short walk, some four or five miles. And as they're traveling, a, a third person joins them. They don't recognize who it is, but we learn that it is the resurrected Christ. As they are walking along, he asks them, why are, you, why are you sad today, or why is your countenance now fallen? And they said, are you a stranger in Jerusalem? Do you not know what happened? Uh, Jesus was crucified, and today they found his tomb empty, and we don't know what to make of that. And the greatest Bible study that was ever given in the history of the world takes place in Luke 24. Notice with me at verse 27. And, at, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he, that is Jesus, expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Moses is the author of the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And so while the events in Joseph's day happened before Moses, God used Moses to write them down. And so when Jesus says, Moses wrote about me, he is referring to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Again, if you're there in Luke 24, look over at verses 44 and 45. And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. 
Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. Those are the three <clears throat> major categories of Old Testament scripture. The writings of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And so that's how they would say the whole Bible in their day and time. When they were speaking about the Old Testament, Moses, prophets, and Psalms. And so Jesus says, it's all about me. From beginning to the end, they're writing about me. To make sure that we got this right, go with me to John chapter 5, if you will, and just give us another proof text to say, okay, we're, we're not forcing an interpretation onto the Old Testament. Jesus actually said that the whole Bible is written about him, even the Old Testament uh, part of Scripture. In John chapter 5, Jesus is rebuking some critics, and he says in verse 39, Search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. So, quick quiz here. When Jesus says scriptures, what's he talking about? Anybody want to ponder a guess? I mean, Old Testament, that's right. The New Testament is not written when Jesus speaks those words. As a matter of fact, John didn't write those down in his gospel until the, uh, the early 90s A.D. He's the last one to write his gospel. So when Jesus says, search the scriptures, for they are they which testify me, he is saying, search the Old Testament, because it talks about me. Again, if you drop down to verse 46, he repeats that same statement or similar. For had you believed Moses... You would have believed me, for he wrote of me. And so he says, Moses, while he was recording the history of Israel, while he's recording the history of mankind, while he is writing or recording the law that God gave, the main thing behind it all is me, Jesus Christ. And so having that knowledge, armed with that knowledge, when we come to a passage of Scripture like this in Genesis, we do need to look back and say, okay, is this giving us a picture of Jesus? And Joseph in particular gives us a fantastic pattern that is going to be repeated a couple of times over until Jesus comes. What God is doing is He is giving His people every opportunity to recognize the Messiah when he comes. Think about all the prophecies that he gave throughout Scripture, like when he said through Moses, there'll be a prophet like me that'll come and you'll recognize him. Or when Jacob pronounced the, the blessing and the prophecy on his son Judah uh, that, uh, that Shiloh would come. Or when Isaiah says that a virgin will give birth to a son and, uh, and Zechariah talks about the king who is coming. All of those, Jesus is being foreshadowed or foretold so that the people have every evidence they need to recognize him when he comes. Well, as we get to this portion of Joseph's life, I just want to kind of fan out for a moment and show you a pattern that is there in Joseph's life. And it is a pattern that's repeated in Moses' life. And it's a pattern that's repeated in David's life. And it's a pattern that is repeated in Jesus' life. God is giving us clues, road markers along the way for us to say, Aha, this is 
the one. What is that pattern? Well, uh, to keep you from flipping to all kinds of scripture, I just want to, to read it out for you, kind of lay it out for you in Joseph's life. We've been in these texts over the past few weeks. You're familiar with them. So think about this. Joseph is introduced to us as being favored of his father, right? When we meet him in Genesis 37, he is his father's well-beloved son. He is exalted. He is promoted. He is the one that his father dotes on. But we find that while he is favored by his father, he is rejected by his brethren. In that same introduction to Joseph, we learn that his brother hate him. They hate him so much that they contemplate killing him, and instead they sell him into slavery. By selling him into slavery, he is as good as dead. I mean, it was the substitute for killing him, but in their minds, he's as good as dead. When, when he takes off his Egyptian garb and reveals himself to his brothers in the first part of this chapter, they are absolutely speechless. They are blown away because for all they knew, Joseph died a long time ago in slavery or prison or whatever else atrocity may have came from him being sold into slavery. So he's good as dead. There's a passing of time, right? It's over 20 years in the life of Joseph. It's just this long period, passing of time. But then there's a miraculous comeback, right? If you and I didn't know the story of Joseph, we would say there's no way this guy got snatched out of the jailhouse and promoted to be the prime minister of the country right where does that happen in the history of the world where does that happen right our, our president doesn't choose his vice president from death row or from the felons in the in, in the prison system right uh, england does not appoint prime ministers straight out of the jail and here we find this miraculous comeback that is inexplicable by any human ingenuity or stratagem. But yet there it is, this miraculous comeback where he comes from the lowest low and goes to the highest high. And then we find that he's given that promoted position. So not only is it a comeback from where he is, but he's actually given a promotion that puts him in a position that is above and over others, which in turn leads to the salvation of Israel, right, and the world. Because Joseph is the one who interpreted the dream that there would be seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. He's the one who devised the strategy that they take 20% of the crops for those seven good years, build storehouses across the land of Egypt, store it up, and then have it to disperse. When the famine sets in, he begins to uh, distribute that. His family uh, up in Canaan are starving too. The famine has hit there. So where do they come? To Egypt. Who do they encounter? Without knowing it, Joseph. And it is Joseph who saves them and helps them survive. And then in this text, we see not only did he send them grain, but now he brings them back into Egypt and he takes care of them and ensures their salvation, their livelihood. As a matter of fact, in this pattern with Joseph, not only does he provide salvation for Israel, the whole house of Israel, but he provides it for the whole world 
The Bible tells us that the famine was worldwide and that people were coming from all places to Egypt because Egypt was the only place that had the grain and the supplies. And then, following this salvation, we find reconciliation with his brothers. Right? That may be the most astonishing part of this story, is that Joseph, who has this miraculous comeback, promoted to this exalted position, has the power to execute or imprison his brothers, actually does no such thing. He does not raise a fist at them. He extends his arms. He embraces them in a hug. He weeps upon their neck. They weep upon his. They reconcile. And he is the one who forgives their debts, their faults, their sins against him. And then it all wraps up with him ruling over them, right? While he does not abuse that power, there is no question about who's in charge. It is little brother Joseph. He is second in command in the land of Egypt, and he's ruler. So let's put that to the test. That's what I am saying or proposing is a pattern that God placed in Scripture for the conscientious reader, the student, who would just make that observation as they're reading about the life of Joseph and say, you know, that, that's interesting. Seems like maybe I've seen that somewhere else. Well, let's fast forward to a man named Moses. We encounter Moses in the first four books of Exodus. We get a biography about him. Right? And there's other patterns that, that expand and come in. Uh, for instance, Moses was almost killed as a baby because Pharaoh was executing children, right? And we remember that when Jesus was born, uh, that, uh, that uh, uh, Herod tried to do the same. But let's watch this pattern. Moses is favored by Pharaoh's daughter, right? His mother, in realizing that she cannot hide him, she cannot keep him, she not, cannot keep him safe, builds a waterproof basket, puts him in that little ark, sends him down the river, and it happens to show up when Pharaoh's daughter is down by the river. She hears this baby crying, right? Just one, one of thousands that Pharaoh has had executed, yet something in her heart is touched, and she takes that child, and she cares for that child, and she raises that Hebrew child. He is favored by Pharaoh's daughter. Yet, as we read on, when Moses comes of age... He decides that he'll go visit his brethren. And so the Bible tells us that he's about 40 years old. Uh, others know of his Hebrew heritage being raised in the house of Pharaoh. When he goes to visit his brethren who are slaves, he finds an Egyptian soldier abusing one of them. And in an act of deliverance, he takes that Egyptian soldier and he kills him. Knowing that he's broken the law, he buries him in the sand and goes back home comes back the next day and this time he finds two hebrews who are struggling together not a hebrew and an egyptian and he seeing himself as a leader a deliverer steps in between them to try and stop it and one of them says what will you do kill me like you killed that egyptian and we find that he's rejected by his brethren the hebrews did not want moses to deliver them at that time well same as the pattern goes, he's good as dead. Pharaoh hears that Moses has killed one of the Egyptians, and Moses flees for his life 
and he is good as dead, and there's a passing of time. Remember, 40 years in the wilderness, 40 years on the backside of the desert. Nobody in Egypt has heard from Moses. Nobody knows if he is alive or dead, if the desert has got him or some other animal. But then there is a miraculous comeback. A little different than Joseph's, yet there is divine intervention. He is in the field one day, and he sees a bush that is burning, and it is not consumed. And when he goes to explore that, he hears a voice from heaven. It is God Almighty. Take off your shoes. You're on hallowed ground. And God gives him his promotion. And so he has a miraculous comeback, and he is promoted to a position. Moses, I want you to be my mouthpiece. I want you to go back and deliver my people. Moses says, they won't listen to me. How can I do this? I don't have leadership. What's in your hand, Moses? Well, it's a staff. Throw it down. It becomes a serpent. Ah, pick it back up. It becomes a staff. And he says, I will exalt you and promote you among your people. And so this miraculous comeback... He comes back now as the representative of the Hebrew people, does he not? He walks into Pharaoh's palace on behalf of the people and demands, let my people go. And we find that he becomes the savior of the Hebrew people. Their burden has been getting heavier and heavier and heavier. And Moses shows up and he becomes their savior. He is reconciled to his brethren now they are no longer rejecting him they're not saying we don't need you Moses now they are following him out to the Red Sea they're following him into the wilderness they're following him as he leads the camp around and Moses is known to this day as the lawgiver in Israel he rules over them it's a pattern it's a pattern in the life of Joseph. It's a pattern in the life of Moses. God is setting a pattern, and he repeats it. In, he starts it in Genesis. He repeats it in Exodus. He's going to do it again in 1 Samuel with David until he unveils what he was prefiguring. And so we see the pattern for Joseph. We see the pattern for Moses. Now let's take a look and see the pattern for David. David, uh, we would find this in 1 Samuel beginning in chapter 16 and actually going all the way through to 2 Samuel. Like I said, there's a lot of scripture to cover and uh, we won't dig into each of those. But we find that David is favored in 1 Samuel 16 through 18. We first meet him when God calls Samuel to say, Samuel, I want you to anoint a king out of the sons of Jesse. And so he goes to Jesse's house, and he has Jesse's sons pass before him. And Jesse's oldest son comes, and you know the story. Samuel is impressed. Look at this outstanding young man. And God says, I've not chosen him. And the next one comes, and Samuel says, surely this is the anointing. I've not chosen him. And the third, and the fourth, and the fifth, and the sixth, and the seventh. And Samuel says, do you have any more kids? Well, we've got that one youngest one, and he's out there in the field keeping the sheep. And Samuel says, would you please have him come and lo and behold when little David the shepherd boy walks up God says that's him that's my favored one that's my anointed one 
And so not only do we find him favored by God through the anointing of Samuel, but do you remember what happens next in the narrative before the whole David and Goliath thing? Saul has these fits. We don't know exactly what they are. Uh, perhaps it is bipolar, undiagnosed. He swings from a high to a low. And he needs somebody to play some soothing music when he's in one of his moods. And somebody in his palace says, You know what? There's this kid named David who can play a pretty mean harp. And Saul goes and calls this nobody shepherd boy from the backside of Bethlehem. And he gets to come and stay in the king's palace and play music for the king when the king is in a bad mood. I would say that's favored. In fact, the next time we see David is when Goliath is on the scene and they're in a standoff and nobody wants to fight Goliath and David says, I'll stand up for God. And he goes down with his sling and his stone and he defeats Goliath and when he comes back, you know what happens to him? Jonathan gives him one of only two swords that are in the entire kingdom. It was an emblem of his position. So he's favored, but he's rejected by his brethren. Do you remember what happened when he went down that day when Goliath was in the field? And he is, he is shocked by the fact that this uncircumcised Philistine is blaspheming God. And his older brother says, we know what you came down here for. You just want to see a fight. And he is rejected. Not only is he rejected by his brother, but after he wins the fight, after he is promoted, all of a sudden Saul has one of those fits, and now his jealousy is over David. And instead of seeing David as a, as a favored one, Saul now sees him as a challenge, and he rejects him and wants to kill him. And so David has to flee for his life. And multiple times Saul pursues him, trying to kill him. David is good as dead while he is hiding out. In fact, he has to go so far that he leaves Israel entirely because Saul will not stop hunting him, that he goes down to the very enemy that he stood across the field from when he faced Goliath and sought haven there. And so he is as good as dead. If your greatest ally is the people who hate you, you're in a bad situation. There is a passing of time. We're not told how long it was, but we know that they, it must have seemed a lot longer to David than it was as he thought back over his life, how he longed for his pastoral home in Bethlehem as he recalled being anointed to be the king without seeking out that position. But now he is wasting away in the enemy land as an expatriate from Israel. But then there's this amazing comeback. As you know, Saul and David face off with the Philistines, or Saul and Jonathan face off with the Philistines, and they end up losing their lives. And do you know what the tribe of Judah does? They go back and they get David because David while Jonathan and Saul were fighting Philistines David engages in his own battle and wins 
and he secures his place in the heart of the people of Israel. Not only does he have a miraculous comeback, but he comes back as the king of Judah. He is promoted to that position. And David becomes the savior of Israel. He becomes the one who finally puts down those pesky Philistines who have been troubling Israel all of his days. And then in 2 Samuel 5, he's reconciled to his uh, brethren. Do you realize he, he reigned for seven years in Judah before he was accepted as the king of Israel? But that day of reconciliation came, and he did not hold it against them. He reconciled with them, and the pattern finishes with him being king, ruling over the united kingdom of Israel. And so while we're stepping back and just looking at the major movements in the life of Joseph, the life of Moses, the life of David, it does seem as if there is a pattern. Favored, rejected, good is dead, time passes, miraculous comeback, promoted position, savior, reconciled to the brethren, and then ruling. Well, let's think about Jesus' life. He begins life as being favored. When he is baptized, a voice from heaven speaks, This is my well-beloved Son in whom I am well-pleased. And for the first couple of years of Jesus' ministry, he is skyrocketing in popularity. Yes, the Pharisees never do like him, but we are told that people flock to him by the thousands just to give you an indicator, a marker, we are told the number of the men that were fed at one time was 5,000 men, not counting women and children. If there was one woman and one child for every man, that means there were 15,000 people who showed up just to hear Jesus teach. I'd say that's pretty highly favored, is it not? But then comes the rejection. At some point in that earthly ministry, Jesus narrows his message and he begins to preach that people must repent and believe. And then all of a sudden, the, the, the critics get momentum and the leaders of the nation who should have been the first to welcome him were the ones who devised a plan to reject him and to crucify him. Jesus is not just good as dead. Jesus is dead they take him to the cross they nail him they let him expire on that cross just as it was a pattern in the life of jo joseph moses and david who were as good as dead jesus actually dies there's a passing of time three days and then there's a miraculous comeback is there not the most miraculous comeback in the history of all comebacks. Early on that Sunday morning, the ground began to shake. The stone rolled away. A glorious light broke forth, not from the sun, S-U-N, but from the sun, S-O-N. And Jesus walked out of the grave, making a comeback like none had ever seen before. And he comes back to a promoted position he was the suffering Savior once. He came first as the suffering Savior to die on the cross. But God declared him to be both Savior and Lord. 
by the resurrection. And so he is literally the Savior of the world. And he is, or will be, reconciled to his brethren, and he will rule. Now here's the pattern. These men in the Old Testament, Joseph, Moses, and David, were Hebrews. What they did all happened in Israel. The brethren that they were reconciled to were Jews. Do you realize that Jesus has a day in the future when he's going to be reconciled to his brethren? That day has not happened yet. If we had time tonight, we could go to passages like Romans chapter 11, where the Bible says that Israel rejected Christ and that they have been set aside for a period of time, but that there is coming a day when they will be reconciled and they will be saved. Matthew chapter 24, verses 27 through 31, Jesus describes the same thing. When the Son of Man comes back, then Israel will be saved. They will see the one whom they have pierced. Jeremiah chapter 30 prophesies about it. Zechariah chapter 14. As a matter of fact, I want you to see Zechariah, if you can find that in the Old Testament, the minor prophets, Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah, the theme of the book of Zechariah is the king is coming. And I'm telling you, it is full of prophecy about Jesus. Yes, we saw a miraculous comeback from the grave. We see Jesus in his promoted position because we have been reconciled to him through his saviorship. But his ministry to Israel has not been fulfilled yet. He is still in that passing of time period with them. But he's coming back in a pretty miraculous way. Zechariah chapter 14 begins like this behold the day of the lord cometh and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of them for i will gather all nations against jerusalem to battle and the city shall be taken and the houses rifled and the women ravished and half of the city shall go forth into captivity and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city then shall the lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. And there shall be a very great valley, and half of the mountain shall remove toward the north and half toward the south. And ye shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach unto Azel. Yea, ye shall flee like as ye fled from before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. And the Lord my God shall come, and all the saints with him. And it shall come to pass in that day that the light shall not be clear nor dark, but it shall be one day which shall be known to the Lord not day nor night, but it shall come to pass that at evening time it shall be light. And it shall be in that day that living waters shall go out from Jerusalem, half of them toward the former sea, half of them toward the hinder sea. In summer and in winter shall it be. Listen to verse 9. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day 
shall there be one Lord and his name one. I'm telling you, God laid out a pattern for the Jews. And he said it in Joseph. And he repeated it in Moses. And he solidified it in David. So that they could see that there was one coming named Jesus who's going to follow the same pattern. And I'm telling you, they have a reason to hope because that pattern has not been completed with them the way it was with Joseph, Moses, and David. And you and I recognize that we are living in the grace of God right now only because Israel rejected their king. But God is not through with them, Romans 11. God hath not cast them away. He is going to reconcile them. He is going to save them. And then he's going to rule over them. I'm telling you, it's a pattern that God has placed in Scripture. And it's one of the signature marks that reminds us that this is a supernaturally inspired book, not written by human penmen out of their own ingenuity, but supernaturally inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. The author is one. It is God, the Holy Spirit. The theme is one. It is Jesus Christ. And the pattern is replete. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Lord, for giving us the opportunity to take the time to look at the big picture, to see the pattern begin to emerge, that as we read along, we, we see glimpses of it again, and we stop and we pause and we dig deeper and we say, yes, the same elements are there, realizing that you were prefiguring the Lord Jesus Christ who has come. And Lord, I rejoice that your people, Israel, have a future hope of reconciliation with their Savior and that one day he will be their reigning king. God, I pray and ask that you would open their eyes, remove the veil, help them to see the truth, and may we ever make every opportunity that we have to share the gospel with your chosen people, the Jews. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.